Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Brokenbridge, Pontifrac. Today in the house, Michael Bungay-Stanier, MBS. No, not that one. Welcome, my friend. Uh, a little bio, and then uh, we'll get right on with it. Michael helps people know they're awesome and they're doing great, which is why he's here to tell me I'm awesome and I'm doing great. He's perhaps best known uh, for his book, The Coaching Habit, which is the best-selling book on coaching this and probably next century. It has sold, uh, I got my stats right, Michael, 17.4 trillion copies, which is pretty good. He's uh, counting. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's not known for enjoying an old-fashioned or two with yours truly. His recent other books uh, include How to Begin, which helps people find the clarity and courage to start something thrilling, important, and daunting, and The Advice Trap, Tame Your Inner Advice Monster So You Can Be More Coach-Like, More MBS-Like. Today, I'm really excited to chat with Michael about his latest book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, which pretty much does what it says on the label. But wait, there's more. Michael founded Box of Crayons in 2002, a learning and development company that has trained hundreds of thousands of managers to be more coach-like in organizations from the likes of Microsoft to Gucci to Telus, my former alma mater. He left Australia about 30 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where, as he claims, his only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian, which is why he now lives in Toronto and... Bonus, it's the only reason he's on this show today, if I'm being honest. Michael, <laughs> welcome to the show again, my first repeat customer. Ah, thanks, uh, Dan. You know, I appreciate our friendship. Um, you know, it means that I can exploit you when I have a new book and I'm like, and I can come <laughs> begging and I'm like, Dan, please, nobody else wants to talk to me. Will you talk to me? And you're like, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. But thanks. It's, it's, you know, you and I are simpatico in terms of, what we think about and how we see the world and kind of the stuff that we wrestle with, including wrestling with trying to write books. And so it's nice to be chatting with a kindred spirit. Well, my kindred extends solely to Marcella because I'm empathetic for having her to put up with you. So this is really for her. So I'm just like, you know, trying to keep that marriage going with you. Yeah, she's grateful. Actually, <laughs> it's our uh, 28th wedding anniversary today. Today on this recording, oh. what are you doing with me? Kind sir. Good gosh. Well, I, I knew we were cut somewhat from the same cloth, although I am wearing my most favorite MBS shirt today, because uh, in a month's time, I too celebrate my 28th anniversary. How about that? Uh, huzzah. Well done, Isn't bizarre? Aren't we lucky? Aren't we? Lucky in, yeah, or luck out, whatever you want to call it. We, we married up and they put up with our book writing. Okay, now in this wonderful How to Work with Almost Anyone book, so I've been privileged to be in it with you sort of in two versions. One was when I'd say you were fledgling. Uh, and it was, uh, I don't know, um, pieces of going in the right direction. And you kind of put the brakes on and said, oh, based on feedback and perhaps your own uh, experience of writing books, you, you sort of decided to go in not a different direction, but a, I would say the end result is a much better direction. So can we start there? Like what you did to almost work with anyone, I guess, to almost work with anyone for a better book? <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, you know, I haven't really done this before, but I thought I would lean on more collective wisdom this time. So I put what I thought was better than a first draft out. I'd done a bunch of work. I'd run it past Marcella and some of my key early readers. And they're like, yeah, this is pretty good. And so I put it out to a broader range of people who I would value feedback from. And the feedback was a resounding sense of underwhelm. <laughs> 
there were like people going, I like bits of it. But yeah. there was nobody going, this has got a real clarity to it and a real sense of purpose to it. And, you know, Daniel and I both know that, you know, the first draft is always crap and the third draft is probably fairly crap as well. It doesn't make it any easier when you share your third or first draft and everybody goes, it's a bit crap, isn't it? You're like, yeah. ah. <laughs> but, you know, I've done enough of this now that I know that the rewriting is just part of the process. And you 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 wander through the swamp of despair and the slew of despond and the valley of desperation to get to the hillside of a, a an, an okay book. Um, and you know, my, a, a, I've got a couple of design beliefs that are behind this. One is I'm always trying to write the shortest book I can. That's the most useful. So I'm always like trying to go, how do I, how do I strip out anything that's excessive to it? And secondly, I'm trying to create a clear arc, a clear journey. And, um, one of the big things I did is I moved the front third of the first draft of the book. And it became the appendix to the final version of the book. And I realized that what they did was it meant that I was starting with the big idea right from the top. It wasn't a warm up. I had to kind of lay my best cards on the table going, look, this is a book on a conversation about how we work together that you have before you talk about what you work on. Mm-hmm. Because if you talk about how you work together, you're actually saying, let's figure out how we work best. Let's build the best possible relationship before we get sucked into the work and the busyness of all of that. And that's the big idea. And I realized I had to kind of get that into the first chapter or else people would get kind of lost and bored. And I'm not quite sure why I'm wading through all of this stuff um, when you haven't told me the point of it. Well, uh, being one of those privileged few, uh, uh, the chance to see both versions. I mean, I, I really appreciate you not just reaching out, listening to feedback from, you know, your sweet 108 or whatever you're calling them. But uh, the way in which that you restructured the book and did exactly what you've just said, you can tell it's that uh, thorough uh, gotcha up front. Hello, how? Like, what? Yeah. You know, why is this important? And then the what comes after. Okay, so you write really up front, which wasn't in the first version, but in the final, every relationship becomes suboptimal at some point, whether it's good one that goes off the rails or one that was poor from the start. So the question I have for you, Michael, uh, why? And not just why, but why do you believe that every relationship becomes suboptimal? I mean, I'm kind of freaking out right now because I'm thinking, well, we're 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 bound to be suboptimal. You and I, I'm kind of freaking out right now. Yeah. So what's going so on I, here? I mean, I feel like we're in a bit of a low spot right at this very, yeah. very moment now that you mention it. Yeah. Um, look, I think um, a it's it's my lived experience. I have yet to have a flawless relationship where nothing got slightly wrong or slightly misunderstood somewhere along the line. And secondly, I just think it's, look, you know, it's reality. (laughs) People are complicated, messy, confusing. You are complicated, messy, and confusing. We have all of these biases. We have all of these kind of ways that we're nudged one way or another. We are, um, we have a, greater or lesser amount of emotional intelligence that's kind of understanding about who we are. But even if we're fully blessed with emotional intelligence, we still have our blind spots. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's miraculous, quite frankly, we get along at all. (laughs) (laughs) So I think um, it's impossible to imagine a relationship where, you know, one way you're really working with somebody where some misunderstanding doesn't happen, some disappointment, some expectation isn't met, some, 
unspoken thing is not lived up to, it's bound to happen. And mm. so rather than crossing your fingers and hoping for the best, which is what I think is most of our approach to relationship management most of the time, it's like let's actually be more active about mm -hmm. trying to build the best possible relationship between you and that other key person. It's it's like you're calling out the inevitable elephant in the room, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's right. And I think, you know, one of the great powers of this keystone conversation, this conversation about how we work together rather than all about what we're working on, one of the, it's like the unexpected benefit of this is that it gives you permission to keep talking about the health of the relationship. Keeps got you're you're allowed to keep checking in and going, hey, how are we doing? How's this working for you? How's this working for me? How's this working for us? And often, if you don't have that type of relationship, it becomes very hard to bring that up because you're like, ah, oh, we've never talked about it. So how do I even begin to talk about it now? Well, if you've done an initial conversation, or even if you've been brave enough with a working relationship you have right now, and you're like, let's stop for a moment. And let me just check in with you. How are we doing? Should, mm -hmm. Is there anything we could do to make this better? Um, you're allowed to keep checking into that meta level of how's this going, which then allows you to be far more productive on the what are we actually working on? Well, I didn't do a word count count on two terms, uh, conversation and relationship, but those really are the two centrifugal mm -hmm. forces that find their way throughout the book. So you talk about and introduce and yet even copyrighted, keystone conversation, uh, which is a brilliant term I want you to unpack in a second. But that leads to the BPR, the acronym that is best possible relationship. And these two terms, really not just centrifugal forces, but they are uh, like the nucleus of your atom uh, right. that's found, you know, as I say, intertwined in the book. So tell us a bit about keystone conversation and its yes. relationship to BPR relationships. Yeah, let me start with the best possible relationship. So this is the goal which is to build the best possible relationship with the key people with whom you work. And I'm not saying the best relationship because you can't have a perfect, wonderful relationship with everybody with whom you work. It can be nice if you could, but yeah. unfortunately it just doesn't work like that. In fact, if you think back to your past and your present working relationships, it's probably a bell curve. You probably have a few up at one end where you're like, man, this is so good. We just clicked and we, we elevated each other and we trusted each other and kind of, it was just kind of had, had a little bit of fairy dust magic on it. And probably at the other end of the bell curve, there are some relationships where you're like, this is a grind. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's like this person is, is mad and uh, impossible to work with, but often enough, you're like that they're, they're trying and I'm trying, but we just can't figure it out. We can't find it's It's the sand in the gears. Yeah. And then, honestly, most working relationships are going to be somewhere in the middle, perfectly okay most of the time, occasionally a little high, occasionally a little low. But the key insight is each one of those key relationships has potential, and you're trying to fulfill as much potential as possible, best possible relationship. So you're trying to make the bad ones less dysfunctional and as, as solid as they can be. And you're trying to take the solid ones and go, can we get a little more magic? Can we get a little more dynamism here? Can we bring out the best in each other? And you're trying to keep the good ones as good as they can be for as long as they can be. Um, and then if you go, so what What then is a, a BPR, a best possible relationship? You go, well, it depends on you and that other person. 
because mm-hmm. it's a negotiation and a co-creation between the two of you, but it'll have three characteristics. It'll be safe. It'll be vital. So in other words, uh, kind of have some life to it, have some not danger exactly, but a willingness to kind of push each other and step to the edge and kind of explore the boundaries. And it needs to be repairable. It needs to be fixable as well. So you kind of have written the book in a way that then sort of asks the individual, the reader, to uh, effectively prepare themselves, right, with these five essential questions, and then you you get into maintenance. So let's start with the preparation question. So, uh, you know, the, I mean, in usual MBS fashion, you've got some very good vernacular. You call it the amplify question, the steady question, the good date, bad date questions, number three and four, and then uh, the fifth one, the repair question. So yeah. Uh, just on a general term first, like why is it important to be asking yourself these types of essential questions in the process of BPR? So the Keystone conversation is this idea of let's talk about how we'll work together rather than what, what we'll work on. And you don't have to follow exactly these five questions because it can be fundamentally you and me going, hey, how should we do this, you and me, so that we stay as good as possible, as much as possible, and we avoid bad as possible, as much as possible. That's what you're basically asking. Mm -hmm. But I thought it'd be helpful to give five specific questions around that. And um, it helps if you've actually had to think about the answers to them, because you will have fast, immediate answers to all of these questions. And one of the things that may come out of this conversation is you just getting smarter and more nuanced and a little more subtle about who you are in this world. So the first of the questions is the amplify question and it's what's your best. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately now, I mean, it's now published, (laughs) but I'm like, this is, this is a slightly awkward question. I realize, but it comes from me trying to avoid what are you good at or what are your strengths? Um, Because, those feel like they have limitations to them. And I'm trying to get a bigger sense of not just what your strengths are, not just what you're good at, but when do you shine and when do you flow? You know, flow is that internal state where you're like time speeds up and slows down and you're kind of doing work that kind of has just the right amount of balance between challenge and safety. Um, Shining is when people are watching you and you're like, oh, you know, their eyes are sparkling. They're clearly kind of showing up as a best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's finding language around that. So, you know, if Dan, if you and I are working together and I go, Dan, let me tell you what I'm like at my best. This is my best. And I get to tell you that. It's like how helpful that is for you to understand what I think my best is. Because it also allows me to be, to give you direction around things you may assume are my best, but in fact aren't. And mm-hmm. one of the exercises in the book is, what's the difference between what you're good at and what you're fulfilled by? Now, there will be tasks for sure that you are both good at and fulfilled by. I mean, maybe for you, it's like being a podcast host. You're like, you're good at it. You do a great job. You do great preparation. You ask great questions. You're charismatic, all of that good stuff. And you like doing it. Like it actually makes you go, yeah, this is cool. I love this stuff. But There's also stuff that you're good at and that you are not fulfilled by. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's just because you've been around long enough that you're like, I've just learned how to do this. Sometimes you've just got a natural ability to do it, but it doesn't mean that you love doing it. And 
for you, Dan, and for everybody listening, you can imagine you going, you know, I can think of some stuff that I'm good at. I really, I really wish people would stop giving it to me um, to do. But you also know that you fall into that trap with other people. You, you make the assumption that if they're good at it, they probably want to do it. They probably like doing it. You should probably delegate it to them. And that may not be the case. Mm. You you make mention as well, then, in sort of questions uh, three and four, the good date question and the bad date question, you, you're kind of saying what what's successful and what's frustrating. And the key word here is from past relationships. So I think yeah. I'm right, Michael, you're asking people to uh, intro, like introspectively look from within, from their past to say, well, basically what was working, what, what's not, so I can take that moving forward That's in future it. relationships. Yeah, your, your patterns from your past will repeat again in the future. Mm -hmm. I mean, whilst it is true that all those past relationships were a unique individual, distinct individual, and a distinct context, and that may change some of the surface details, some of the fundamental patterns will absolutely repeat. So I think it's a really helpful conversation to say to the, the other person, let me tell you what was done and not done and said and not said mm -hmm. when I was in a really great working relationship. <laughs> and often I think it's useful if you're talking about the best of it, a kind of a, a good working relationship to talk about what the other person did, but also to talk about what you did, how you contributed to that. And then you can just flip the question and go, now talk about a frustrating working relationship, one that kind of, you know, drove you a little nuts, <laughs> what was done and not done, what was said and not said. And often, quite frankly, Dan, what was not done and not said in those frustrating relationships are the kind of the, the, is the interesting reveal. Mm -hmm. And the temptation when you're talking about frustrating past relationships is to point the finger at that other person and go, let me tell you what a nightmare they were. They were, they were psychopath, they were deranged, they were mad, they were out of their depth, whatever it is. Um, I'm sure some of that is true. Um, but what's really interesting is to share what was your role in the dysfunctional relationships of the past, because that's a really helpful conversation to have with other people, which is like, here's how I can get in the way of working relationships working. Here's how I react under stress. Here's how I shrink. Here's how I um, collude. Here's how I sabotage. And we've all got some of that. So this is a conversation to say, let me tell you about that, just so you know what we can avoid and what we can double down on as you and I work together. Uh, coming at it from a perspective of how you and I met, if you recall, because you accosted me 10 years ago. And I was trying to think through why has our relationship uh, flourished, shined yeah. even. Yeah. And then I was juxtaposing why some of my other relationships have faltered. So it was this section, right? When I was looking uh, particularly at sort of the bad dates and, and looking yeah. at myself and saying, well, Dan, it's not just Brian or Nancy's fault. It's actually you, 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 although you address reciprocity with Michael, you in our yeah. relationship over a decade, uh, there has not been reciprocity and including me. So I was like, well, I, I actually said, screw you, Michael, for making me feel like a horse's ass uh, on my relationships with Brian and Nancy. But right. it, did, it did sort of reveal something about me. So I wanted yeah. to thank you and just- well, My pleasure. 
I mean, you and I, you know, we have a friendship that goes back 10 years and longer, I think, actually. And we've had moments where, you know, you've I've, you've had me on your podcast and I've had you on my podcast and there's been that kind of reciprocity. You've done, you've, you, for instance, are contributing to the audio version of how to work with almost anyone. And that's kind of a nice for both of us, I hope. Like you get to have a bit of profile and I get your voice in the audio book. So there's that nice give and take. But I'd be really interested if like you and I, you know, in the past, you and I have said, why don't we put on a conference together? That would be fun. And then COVID and all sorts of other things. But, you know, that may still be something that you and I think about doing. And if we did that, the temptation would be for you and me to go, you know, you and I have spoken on stages and lots of places. What's your favorite conference? What should we do? Who should we invite? Who should we organize? How should we organize the cocktails the night before? And you just get excited about what would we call it? Where would we have it? Is it in, in Victoria, where you are? Is it in Toronto, where I am? You know, we'd be all into it. But actually, it'd be really great where if we step back and went, Dan, you and I know each other, but let's not take each other for granted. Mm-hmm. When you've co-created something and collaborated with somebody before, and it's been a great success, what happened? What did you do? What did they do? What didn't get done and didn't get said that all made it work? And 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 when you've tried to collaborate and build something with somebody else and it's been a struggle, what happened then? What did they do? What did they not do? And you and I actually haven't had that type of conversation no. and we would want to yeah. because we would do what everybody else is tempted to do, which is to go, I know Dan, Dan knows me. We like each other. We have exquisite taste and everything. This is just going to be fantastic. We're going to get along fine. And somewhere down the line, we're going to kind of, something will go wrong. Like for instance, you and I are both kind of big picture, hand waving, visionary, <laughs> Don't bother me with any of the details, sort of people. And at some you point, mean, you like, mean it'll be it'll become suboptimal. That's what will yeah, happen. At some stage, yeah. it'll become suboptimal because we're both waving our arms around, going, "But why aren't you doing anything, Dan?" And Dan's like, "Why aren't you doing anything, Michael?" I'm like, "I'm a vision guy. I don't bother." With <laughs> I'm a vision Dan. guy, Michael. I know exactly. <laughs> but we would uncover that potentially and get in a more nuanced and useful way in a conversation, and. Uh, it's that slowing down the, the rush and the excitement of starting something new to say, Dan, let's get this right. Because I I want to do a conference with you, but I'd really like to be a friend of you in 10 years time, yeah. hanging out, catching up, you know, shooting the breeze, having an old fashioned, whatever it might be. And we might screw it up if we don't care and focus on the relationship and manage that actively and get seduced by just the, the what of the work. Well, speaking about being seduced, segues of segues, um, those five essential questions of uh, introspective, retrospective, you know, analysis of oneself, Mm -hmm. then segues nicely to another part in the book, which I perhaps I'm even more smitten with, which are the six principles of maintenance. So now you and I are in maintenance mode, let's say, right, Right. of a relationship. So the six essential, uh, or sorry, principles of maintenance are stay curious, stay vulnerable, stay kind adjust always, repair often, and reset as needed. So before I ask a couple of specific questions about two of those, um, what's the general gist then of the six principles of maintenance? Yeah. So the the first three, stay curious, stay vulnerable, and stay kind, are kind of a, a, a being kind of principles. It's like stay open-hearted, stay open-minded, stay uh, open-headed, stay open-handed, 
you're like, stay open to the relationship. Under stress, we tend to close down. And maintenance is easier if you've got an, I mean, an open heart towards the other person. You kind of assume the best. You give them the benefit of the doubt. You assume positive intent. So there's just a way of showing up. I mean, I'm a, I love the saying, you know, trust in God, but tie up your camels. So I'm not saying be naive about this or self-sacrificing or, you know, victimy about it. But I do think that if you can say, look, we work, we're working at this relationship. Why don't I assume the best rather than default to the worst? That's a really powerful mindset of, of framing. But then the the three that follow, which is adjust always, repair often, and reset as needed, are more kind of tactical, practical ways of going, how do you keep adjusting the picture? So mm. you can see that adjust always is like, you keep fine tuning, you keep checking in. Like I've just, um, before our call, I just had my end of week wrap up with Ainsley, somebody on my team. And I was like, how's it going? And um, big picture, how do you think this is going between us? Because she's just stepped into a new, more senior role. So I'm like, I'm just checking in. How's that feeling? And, um, you know, and I finished the conversation by going, what needs to be said that hasn't been said yet in this check-in call? And there's just a lot of kind of like, I'm just reading it, I'm triangulating, and I'm making sure that we're trying, we're close to as best possible relationship as possible. Mm -hmm. um, repairing often, actually that question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said, I find is a really wonderful question to help me with the repair of things. Because uh -huh. as the person who often has the weight of, status and seniority in company because you know i'm old and i'm a white dude and i've started a company so i'm talking to people who work for me um uh it's hard for them to speak to the stuff that is going slightly wrong so i'm giving all this permission to open space for them to mention the hard thing or the awkward thing or the slightly hurtful thing there's a real permission to let's nip that in the bud so the 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 repair is small, the tear is small, and we mm -hmm. can kind of preemptively do that. And then reset is this moment where you go, man, this was a mess. <laughs> uh, this was hard. We've just gone through something that feels really disruptive to the, our working relationship. Are we looking to end it and end it with a degree of grace and style and generosity? Or are we looking to say, let's, we've got, we can't end it. We've got to figure out how to get back and work together again. So how do we do a reset that gives us a chance to rebuild from whatever's just happened? And I think what you're doing, uh, you do this very specifically, I would imagine, because you're a pretty good writer, I would say. And, and that is, you you set it up in the book that, look, relationships will be will become suboptimal. So you're preparing the reader and us and me that, hey, like, get over it. The elephant in the room is that. Yeah. And then what I really liked in the, in the maintenance um, kind of Question, not questions, I guess, um, the elements or principles. Yeah, the principles, yeah. yeah. So you have, um, you on repair often, for example, Michael, you use the term manage the damage, <laughs> which I think is just awesome, by the way. And in your usual self-deprecating way, you bring up sort of, um, you know, teenage acne, and, and both of us suffered from that horrifically uh, growing up. And it's the the two terms, what's as yet unsaid and unsurfaced, and how will yeah. you fight 
which is really yeah. just powerful in the sense of just expect that you're going to need to repair. So I wanted to unpack that a little bit without the acne and sort of get uh, get your thoughts on going deeper on that particular element. Yeah, you know, I'm I, I'm not a psychologist and I don't even play one on podcasts, but as part of the research uh, into this book, I, I read a lot of the people who are at the heart of writing and teaching about relationships. So, you know, a Esther Perel or a Dan Siegel or a Terry Reel or um, John Gottman or mm. Gary Five Love Languages dude. You know, there's like there's a bunch of people who write about how relationships work and and some of them are brilliant. I mean, Esther Perel's podcast, you know, How's Work? fantastic it's her interviewing two people who are trying to figure out a working relationship mm. and i think it was uh, terry real who speaks most explicitly to this where he says um relationships need repair most of us are terrible at repair <laughs> so i'm like you know when you come back to that best possible relationship triad safe vital and repairable when i teach this and people and i go which of the three are you best at Half the people are like safe, half the people are vital. Almost none of the people say I'm really good at repair. And in fact, when stuff happens, we that that might need to be fixed. Mm. A few things play out. One is um often there's a there's a kind of just a general self-healing thing that happens, you know, through time and necessity, and we just got to get on with it. Um things get a little better, but my working theory is they never quite get back to as good as they used to be. Um, often with repair also, I think if somebody does something, you kind of go, you kind of hold a resentment and you're like, see, I knew I could, couldn't trust Dan thought he was a good guy, but apparently not so much. And there's this kind of slow accumulation of, of sand in the gears of grit, which just stops the relationship being as strong as possible. So to be a person who actively says, I'm going to just keep checking in on the health of this relationship and fix it and repair it can be really powerful. And so the fifth question of the five, because we've covered, I think, three of the other three mm -hmm. of the five. The fifth one is, how will you fix it when things go wrong? Which is really, how will we fix it when things mm -hmm. go wrong? And I suspect there are three main ways you do it. One is you're brave enough to speak up when you're hurt. When there's been damage done, you're brave enough to actually put it on the table and say, this, this happened, and this is how it affected me. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you're willing to look for damage. And that's that question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? Hey, how are you doing? Hey, I noticed this about you. I just want to check in if you're all right. So you keep creating space for the thing to be talked about. It's like, I guess, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and just being willing to go, I'm, you know, I might be a bit oblivious, but let me just check. <laughs> I think this might be happening. Right. Um, and to notice, like, I remember well, with actually with Ainsley, the person I was mentioning before, I'm like, you know, this is a while ago. I was just like, what's going on, Ainsley? Because there's something going on here. And I don't entirely know what's going on. And I probably missed something. But, you know, talk to me. And she's like, yeah, you know that thing, and then that other thing, and then when you did that, the third thing, well, here's the thing. <laughs> and I was like, 
Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, but I can see that. Yeah. Um, and then I think the third element in terms of being helping repair is just being good at apologizing. Hmm. Saying, yeah, I get that. I apologize. That was my mistake. Um, people aren't that great at apologizing. If you can be, if you can become really good at knowing how to apologize with sincerity and with heart, that is a really powerful gift to the the relationship. You bring up Ainsley, and so you also make mention toward the end of the book that uh, you bring up the boss question, and so you're Ainsley's boss, and you say that, you know, the Keystone Conversation BPR, it can sort of work, that's your words, that some bosses will be delighted uh, that you like to design a BPR together, many will be slightly wary and confused uh, because no one will have done this with them before. Yeah, And so I was kind of thinking this through. This podcast is called Leadership Now, and that means that basically everyone has a leader above them. So yeah. what, how would you um, help the reader then say, look, these are the things that you should be thinking about in the boss relationship. Not that you're the boss looking down like you were in the conversation with yeah. Ainsley, but you're Ainsley looking up. Yeah. And, and to expand that even further, I think you can take this method to any key working relationship. So this is people you might manage, might be your boss, it might be somebody you need to collaborate with. So a peer mm. perhaps, or, or somebody who's on a parallel level to you, but you need to figure out how to move, you know, your part of the, the world and their part of the world and how to get that together. Yeah. It could be a key client. It could be a key customer. It could be a key vendor. There's all sorts of relationships where you're like, I want this to be more than transaction. <laughs> I want this yeah. to be have a, a depth and longevity and a robustness and a resilience that's worth investing in. So if you're you know, if you're looking up going, how do I do this with this boss? So much depends on you and depends on them and depends on the culture and the structure of how things work. Um, you know. There's a saying I've written about in other places, every choice you make has prizes and punishments. So in some ways you're looking at this and going, what are the prizes and punishments of this conversation with this person? Mm. And broadly speaking, you know, the prizes are the chance to build an adult to adult relationship or a more adult to adult relationship with somebody that is senior, which elevates you in their eyes which gives you more credibility and more status and more influence in that relationship, which just makes for a relationship that is more pleasant to be worked in. And if you're getting kind of like deep about it, I guess it's like more human to human relationship, mm -hmm. which just means that, um, you know, if that you believe in that saying, which I do, I think the research backs it up. People join organization, but leave managers. If you're like, I don't actually want to leave. So I need to build a good relationship with my manager because that's a key determinant on whether I stay, whether I go, whether I get good work or I don't get good work. There's some real prizes there, mm. but there's a risk. There's a risk, you know, that you're, you're, you're disrupting a hierarchy that you're putting them in an awkward position that they, they're not the least bit interested in this type of conversation and it might fail. You might, they might be interested, but it, the conversation isn't as rich as you were hoping it would be. Um, all of those are at risk and you're weighing them up. Dan, my working assumption is we too often assume that our boss is not interested in this conversation. And whereas I, I would not in any way say that all bosses are interested in this conversation, I reckon it'd be worth 
giving this a shot. Mm-hmm. Like even if you said to your boss, look, I'm just curious. I mean, you've had somebody like me in this role in your team before and it's gone really, really well. What did they do? What made you happy? And when you had somebody like me in this role in your team before and it was frustrating for you, what did what happened? What did they do? What did you do? How did that play out? Because I'd like you, I'd like you to, I'd like this to be good for you. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and for me, um, but I don't know. I can take some guesses, but I'm just making assumptions about what you do and you don't like. If you can tell me what you do and you don't like, I've got a far better chance of actually hitting that. <laughs> and you know, who doesn't who doesn't want that? I was like, if you tell me, there's a chance I can be less annoying. <laughs> I'm like, okay. When you put it like that, I should tell you what annoys me. Yeah. Oh, it's good, man. Okay. Listen, we could talk all day as usual, but uh, listeners have already peeled off, I'm sure, because they're um, listening so well. They're like off to buy the book. Um, I'm going to use some of your language for my final question to you, and then uh, we'll find out more where to find out more about you. All right. What was most useful, Michael, in today's conversation with me about your book, How to Work with Almost Anyone? And actually, well, sidebar, why, why would I ask that question? Yeah. Well, that's a, um, a wonderful question from the Coaching Habit book, The Learning Question, and a question that I champion being a, a nice way of wrapping up a conversation, helping embed, articulating and embedding learning around it. But I mean, what's, what was most useful for me was not the content because I already know the content. Um, I, it'd be Hope interesting so. to ask the listeners, you know, <laughs> what was most useful or most valuable for them because we covered, you made me cover a bunch of stuff really quickly, which was really helpful. And I'm hoping the listeners are listening and going, this was what was most useful or valuable, best possible relationship. Stay vital, repairable, the five questions, the power of repairability, the, the courage to be the person who goes first to make the, the relationship actually be as good as possible. Those are all things people can take away from this. For me, what was most valuable about this is a conversation with a friend and a chance to kind of reconnect and say hello to you. That's what I'm taking away from this. Right back at you. Well, as always, I'm uh, in your army of mbs.works. Where can we find out more about you and this wonderful book, my friend? So for the book and with all the assorted kind of bonuses and stuff that people can get, bestpossiblerelationship.com. And if you want more about me in general and access to resources from the other books and the other courses that we have, mbs.works and on a few of the social platforms at mbs underscore works. You're a genuine human being. Uh, I've loved you for so many years, keeping you. We need, uh, well, I would say we need more MBSs, but there's only one, M- well, there's two, but there's only one real good MBS, and that's you and uh, my friend, uh, just uh, a tip of the hat, uh, a clink of the old-fashioned. Uh, you've got another bestseller on your hands. Well done, sir. Thank you, Dan. All right, all, another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontivrac in the house, the one, the only MBS, how to work with almost anyone, including me. Uh, a soon-to-be bestseller. Look for it on bookshelves in your independent bookstores June 29th? 27th. 27th. June 27th. Okay, sir. Thanks, Michael. Cheers. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye.